Uh, let me remind you of one big announcement. Last week we attempted to put the spotlight clearly on some local missions that we're doing with the Praising Center. We continue to highlight various local mission projects that we want our church to engage in. Uh, I want to shift our attention to say that that is not the only way that we want to be about missions. We also want to uh, go to the nations. We see it as a responsibility to give you opportunities to do that. If you've never been on a short-term mission trip, uh, it is a must, right, for all believers. Uh, in my opinion, it's a beautiful thing to get you out of your local context and into another often uncomfortable context and spend um, some days or weeks engaging in mission there. So we're going to do that together. Um, spring break, uh, we're going to D.C., uh, but you're too late. That trip's already full, so sorry, you can't go. Uh, but you can stay here and serve. Uh, spring break week, we're going to do some things with the upcoming church planning in Greer, as well as some other mission partners here in the city. It costs us 50 bucks for that. You can see Dan Carroll uh, if you're interested in serving that week. The big thing I wanted to put before you is this summer. We have 11 sites. Uh, Honduras and India are two international sites, nine stateside, Seattle, Boston, a new church plant right beside Ohio State University um, that we are partnering with and sending students to for either six weeks or ten weeks. Some of the projects are six weeks, like Boston. Some are ten weeks, like Seattle. And uh, these are like-minded churches that we have, uh, we have a partnership with that we're going to send our students to serve. You'll be doing uh, needs around uh, the church plant, the uh, ministry related internally, or it could be external mission related. Uh, you'll be mentored by somebody in the church plant there and processing with some reading and workbook stuff uh, that we'll do together. If you don't have a meaningful way to invest your summer, we would love to invite you to join us on one of those trips. You can see me or any of the other staffers. We can kind of connect you in to uh, where you're passionate about and how you can be involved in that. We'll also have a team serving here. So if you're going to be like, man, I'm working a 20-hour-a-week job over the summer, but I would love to do something else that's really intentional, we would love for you to join us um, here, either at TCC or in one of three or four church plants that we're going to be partnering with in the city. So if you have a job that gives you the freedom to do that, would you please see one of us? We'd love to, to plug you in with that. Okay? Uh, with that uh, in mind, let's turn our attention to prayer, and, uh, and then we'll feast on God's word. Father, we are deeply grateful for Christ this morning. Grateful that we who were dead in our trespasses and sins, rightly deserving the full weight of the wrath of God, that we have been spared of that punishment through Christ, that which was due us was given to Christ, and that which he earned through perfect righteousness we are now clothed in. That worth worship, that worth our very lives, and we are delighted in 
that you have in your kindness sustained your word such that we can submit under it this morning, that we can think about it, the implications that it has for our lives, and I pray that you use your word this morning to do just that, to bring about fruit in our hearts and in our lives as we think of the person of Christ today. We ask it in his name. Amen. So question, uh, by way of reflection, as we start, what is it about a day or about a week that when you hit your pillow at night, reflect back on the week, leaves you with a sense of, yes, that was awesome. What puts you, is it just going to sleep, right? I'm done with that day. What is it that when you think about, when you place your heart's affections upon, what is it that, that brings you to the edge of the seat of your life? Causes you to look back with a sense of fulfillment sense of joy, real joy. Can you recall the last time in your own life experience that you had a moment that felt like joy? This was the question that drove C.S. Lewis uh, to write really what served as, as his most clear and concise reflection of his life and the book Surprised by Joy, where he recounts his own personal story of conversion, as uh, he recalls, 1929, the most unlikely convert in all the land. I came to the theistic worldview, kicking and screaming with my eyes darting in all directions, looking for any way of escape. And yet, in 1929, after uh, asking questions to these peers that he had around him, he converted to the theistic worldview, and then two years later, in 31, uh, converted to Christianity, seeing Christ as his only hope. And he recounts in, in, that, uh, in that story, that uh, autobiographical account, of this sense of, of longing, the best word translated joy, that he experienced as a young kid. These moments of, of almost... Uh, out-of-body ecstasy, where he felt like, this is what life was made for. And the question as he got older is he, he realized that he wasn't having those experiences anymore. That he did not find joy in a host of other directions and pursuits. And as he tells his story of looking back on this conversion to Christianity, he says, I realized that it was Christ that was the provider of all joy. That the thing, this longing that I felt as a kid that I could not experience as an adult was provided for me in the person and work of Christ. That serves for us as kind of the thesis on what I want us to see in God's word this morning. As we pick up the story in Mark chapter 2, we're sandwiched in the middle of a series of five stories that Mark has uh, combined together because they're, they're all, they all crescendo into a conflict. Jesus does something that somebody doesn't like, and, uh, and, and that's the end of the story. He pieces these, these five together. The two that we're going to look at this morning are in good Baptist fashion connected by food, right? Uh, this is our first New Testament food fight. 
uh, twice we're going to have disagreements uh, over Jesus' eating habits, um, specifically by, by the Pharisees in the text. So uh, as we turn our attention there in Mark 2, let's read, uh, let's read the text, picking up in verse 13. He went out again beside the sea, and all the crowd was coming to him, and he was teaching them. And as he passed by, he saw Levi, the son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he rose and followed. And as he reclined at the table, at, at table in his house, many tax collectors and sinners were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax collectors, said to his disciples, Why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? And when Jesus heard it, he said to them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but the sinners. And now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. And the people came and they said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. For the day will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, they'll fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. For if he does, the patch tears away from it, the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. No one puts new wine into old wine skins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine will be destroyed. So are the skins. But new wine is for fresh wine skins. Two seemingly distinct stories pieced together in the flow of Mark's narrative that start with this running introduction with a call of Levi, it's, all, it's quite similar to what we saw in Mark 1, right? Jesus walking by the way, seeing one, and calling him to follow. And it's clear in Mark's recounting of the story, and the placement of this, he doesn't put it with the other calling of the first disciples, but rather he places it as an introduction on verses 15, 16, and 17. That the call of Levi is a picture of what Jesus was known to do, which is to gather and call tax collectors and sinners and the other outcasts of the day to him. So he uses uh, Levi as an example, as kind of a paradigm, getting running start into the text. Levi, one who would have been uh, a toll collector in the day, uh, most likely sitting along the main road that ran from Damascus uh, to Caesarea, going through Capernaum, and there would be stations, toll collectors, that would collect, that would exact tax for Herod Antipas, for uh, the leader of the day. Uh, these men would be seen as having collusion with the Romans, so it wouldn't be light time. They were outcasts, not only because many of them did so immorally, taking the tax, but also just their contact with the Gentiles. They were thought to be unclean, ceremonially distant. And it's this one that Jesus calls very similar fashion to the other calling of the disciples, he leaves his occupation, right, and, and just follows after Jesus. He becomes then one of what Mark tells us is a growing group 
verse 15, of these tax collectors and sinners who were with Jesus and his disciples. And then at the end of verse 15, he makes sure that we see that there are many of these kinds of people that are with Jesus. Going to the extent of saying that Jesus is known for hanging out with these types of people. Reclining in their house and enjoying a meal, the New Testament picture of the most um, intimate friendship. We would dine together, not at the table, but that we would actually dine together on the floor, just on cushions, reclining together, relaxing, socializing, sharing common friendship. And it was Jesus, this Messiah that Marcus introduced, who was then seen as associating with these outcasts and sinners, and there are people that just don't like that, right? The Pharisees, scribes specifically of the Pharisees say, no, Jesus, that's not what you're, that's not what the Messiah is supposed to do. And Jesus, in typical Jesus fashion, gives a great singer, right? For me not to associate with these people would be the same as a physician saying, I don't want anything to do with the sick, right? That would be foolish, unheard of. It is the very purpose of the Messiah to come and redeem those who are sick, who are outcasts, who are broken. As the physician, I actually came for those very people. That is the purpose for which I came. And then the second story, similar critique. If I'm Jesus at this point, though, I'm growing frustrated, right? And one, you're picking on the fact that I'm eating with the wrong kinds of people. And the next one, you're picking on the fact that I'm not fasting, right? What is it that you want? We see that it is common in the day for those that, teachers of the law, to have disciples and those disciples to fast. You see that John's disciples would do it. Clearly that the Pharisees would do it. We have one Old Testament prescription for that around the Day of Atonement, that they would be fasting. But over the course of time, the snowball of fasting picks up ahead of steam. And people begin to fast for all types of occasions. It could be uh, the death of a loved one, known sin in their life, repentance, remorse of that. Just having a bad time, things going, going poorly. There would be this regular practice of fasting. The Pharisees, as good Pharisees do, etch it into law, right? We're going to fast, and for the Pharisees, that was every Monday or Thursday, from sun up to sundown. This is what you did as a disciple. You, way of repentance, way of recognizing sin, it's a way of dealing with death, you fast. And the Pharisees begin to accuse Jesus, like, Jesus, you're doing what the other guys are doing. You've got followers, and yet these followers aren't doing what all the other people, all the other followers are doing. Why aren't they fasting also? And here Jesus is, in my opinion, a lot less clear, right? It doesn't seem that his response goes with the question. It's a bit strange. He gives two, two comments back. One, a wedding, and one, this picture of Paul or wineskins. He says that the Messiah has come, that Christ is here, the bridegroom is here, and while the bridegroom is here, you don't fast, you party. But, reading it with our eyes, maybe on the other side of the epistles, we can look back and say, well, he's clearly painting a 
picture that he's ultimately going to die. I'm not so sure that that was clear in the text, but he does at least allude to the fact that there's going to be a time when the bridegroom's not going to be. That's when you're going to fast. But for right now, the very one who comes to restore the things that you're fasting for is here. So celebrate. Right? Celebrate. Party. Wedding is here. And then this wineskins, cloth picture. Unless we've heard too many sermons, this is not about starting a new church that has a pastor in blue jeans. All right? This text has nothing to do with uh, getting rid of the old tradition and running to the new. But rather, Jesus is saying that in the Messiah, a new day has dawned. The kingdom has come. And in the person of Christ, because the king is now here, it's not that the old is bad, but his time has passed. So things are going to change. And he is, throughout the rest of the gospel, is going to show that, that while there is some continuity with what has happened before, the incarnation of Christ, his presence among us, is going to radically reshape everyone's understanding of what the Messiah would be. And the people just didn't like that. They didn't like that, and they didn't understand why he's not fasting. And we are introduced to what is going to serve as a conflict that's ultimately going to crescendo into the very death of Christ, right? This text for us is going to present two ways that become paradigms for us of viewing Christ throughout the Gospels. Two pictures, two typologies, two types of people that serve for us as a, as a baseline understanding of how do we, believers, non-believers, how do we view and respond to the person of Christ? The first caricature in Mark's gospel that takes on real skin is going to be that of the scribes and the Pharisees, right? And these guys get a really bad rap, don't they? And rightly so for some, some purposes, Jesus Misses no words in calling out their hypocrisy. And yet in their day, these are strict religious sects that is quite intent on keeping God's law. They're really passionate about obeying it, longing for God to make all things right. And as a result of a passion for obeying the law, obeying the scruples of the law, they erect some external fences around the law that we find in the Old Testament. And this oral law begins to develop. That is their way of saying there's a cliff that God has told us that is there, and we want to make sure we don't get anywhere close to the cliff, so here's some other fences that we want to put in place. So you have this group that's really intent on keeping those fences. And unless we throw stones there, we all do the same thing, don't we? Right? Particularly as parents. If you know that there's a cliff there, you don't put the fall-off sign there, right? You put the fall-off sign back here. And you attempt to erect some external barriers to protect what you know will be impending doom. And so we should, at least, I think, come with the Pharisees with a bit of humility to say, seeking after God and desiring many of them coming of the kingdom, intent on keeping this law and erecting these barriers to protect them and others from falling off the cliff. The problem comes when Jesus shows up 
And he doesn't match their expectations of what the coming of the kingdom is going to look like. He doesn't match their expectations of the Messiah. And when, for you two and me, your expectations get popped, bad things happen, right? I've been the bait, uh, traveling in a tourist trap town and seeing the sign. Come here and experience two hours of the greatest pleasure your family's ever had, all for $7,000, right? Flashing lights, sign, I'm going crazy, let's go family, we'll do it. And you show up, what did I show up for? This is junk, right? This is trivial junk. This is not what I signed up for, or in a restaurant. I see a picture on the menu. And I'm like, ma'am, I would really like that picture. All right, exactly that picture. And they bring my plate and put it against the menu. Like, that doesn't look anything like what I saw on the menu. The eggs are all shrivelly. The bacon's like, it's not, even, it's not close to what I... Now, how do we respond in those moments when our expectations get popped? Not good, right? What, come, what bubbles out... Frustration, criticism, bitterness, finger pointing, blame. These are the very things that we see coming out in the life of Pharisees. Bubbling out, my expectations of the Messiah get popped, and so I'm going to point, criticize, critique. The question is, for us and for them, is what's the thing behind the thing? What's the thing behind the thing? Because the problem for the Pharisees and the problem for us is not necessarily the criticism. The problem is not necessarily the frustration, but the problem is what looms behind these various external responses. And I'm going to suggest to you that the Pharisees provide a picture for us that the thing behind the thing is an inability to find joy in the Messiah. An inability to find joy in the person and working of Christ. Because he doesn't meet their expectations, because he's not who they thought Messiah would be, that at the root is a joylessness in God that demonstrates itself in self-righteous criticism, critique, finger-pointing, unmet expectations. Contrasted with that, we see tax collectors and sinners that are the gospel writers, parenthesis, on the types of people that Jesus came to pursue. These get lumped together with adulterers and other sinners, kind of a catch-all category for those that are either uh, immoral through their lifestyle, known for external overt sin, or they're known for attachment to things that the Pharisees and, and, and the scribes were not attached to. So it could be uh, proximity to the Gentiles, proximity to outsiders. Some would suggest that, that many of these, they just didn't have enough money to eat out the existence, to be able to keep some of the oral law. And so as a result, just not being able to keep up, they were passed out. So you have this bucket, this category of Pharisees, tax collectors, and sinners, and then this other bucket of just the others, the outcast. And Mark makes no scruples on the fact that Jesus 
came, his pursuit was of the other. That he radically pursued those that saw themselves as outcasts, as separate, as distinct. Particularly in the early history of the church, until the legalization of Christianity by Constantine, in the early years of the church, this is what you see making up the majority of the church. It's the other. It's the people that are broken, maimed, blind, sinners. It's the disconnected outcast that are known as being willing to humble themselves and follow after Jesus. Certainly there are exceptions to that. But this becomes the mark of the church. The church is a place for outcasts and misfits. And what do outcasts and misfits have in common? If the Pharisees, their life is marked by a joylessness in Jesus, it suggests to you that what we see in the life of the sinners and the tax collectors is the exact opposite of that, is this simple, seemingly humble joy that comes from knowing that Messiah has pursued them. And this simple posture of Humble joy is pervasive in the lives of those that are around Christ such that his kingdom is marked as a kingdom of joy. John 15, he longs, Jesus is an anti-joy, God isn't a killjoy, but rather he longs that we would have joy. Experience its fullness and its richness. So on the one hand, you have those that don't and can't. And on the other hand, you have those that recognize their brokenness and neediness and that brings them out of their seat in a right understanding of the pursuit of God for them as a lowly, broken son. So let me just reflect a question for you. Is that the posture that you gathered with God's church this morning? Like, which one of those is most descriptive of your life right now? The posture of self-righteousness that comes from joylessness in the Messiah? Or a posture of humble joy that God would save a broken, messed up person like me? As we sang earlier, what bubbles in the affections of your heart you think about when you get out of bed in the morning? Is it joy in Christ or is it self-righteousness in your own position and posture? One of the ways, one of the diagnostic tools that we have for that is the very same things we see coming out of the life of Pharisees. A critical spirit, harsh words, condemning eyes, comparison, just to ask you to reflect back on the last seven days of your life, and what do you see bubbling out externally? Joy in God overflowing in humbleness, a willingness to relinquish your own preferences and pursue Christ, or every opportunity you can pick fight and to point out why others aren't really adding up. Things don't really go the way they think they go, right? They go the way you think they go. These provide for us a thing behind the thing that is joy in Christ. 
And I want to ask the question this morning by way of application. If the Messiah comes and his kingdom is a kingdom of joy, and we have two types of people, the Pharisees and the scribes, joyless self-righteousness, tax collectors and sinners, humble joy and the provision of God, how do you get to be a tax collector and sinner? I think that's a weird question, right? But I'm convinced that for the most of us, our temptation is not to wallow in the shame of our tax collector and sinfulness, but rather we're more easily tempted to place ourselves in the camp of the Pharisees, to run to joylessness and self-righteousness. So what does it take for us to live consistently and joyful, dependent posture on God. If we would affirm that what we're all after at the end of the day, that the thing that I think brings you to the end of the day with a sense of yes, is joy. It's what we're all running after. So how do you get there? Before we suggest from the text how you get there, let me suggest a, a couple of ways that you don't get there. Bear with my broken illustration. This is like downstairs in the basement. I don't know. I rounded it up this morning. All right? So let's say this morning that this is the gate that leads to the ultimate destination of joy. We believe that all of humanity has a longing for fulfillment and joy. If this is the gate and this is the path that gets me to joy... What serves then as the gate, what serves as the path, and what serves as the ultimate end of that gate and that path? Let me suggest a couple that I see consistently. This is the one that we most often tried when we were 16. That the way to get to joy, to fulfillment, the gate is happiness. The path is pleasure. Track it with me. The gate is happiness. The way I get to joy is by being happy consistently. And the way that I'm happy consistently is I feed my pleasures. So what did most of us do, myself included, as teenagers, is you try to figure out and you just dabble in different pleasures. Some of you are still running on this road. You dabble on a pleasure, you recognize pretty quickly that it lacks the ultimate provision that you desire from the pleasure, so you run after a different pleasure, and you run after a different pleasure, and you run after a different pleasure. The ultimate end of happiness to pleasure is addiction. And we, we need not think of addiction as uh, a drug addiction necessarily, or a pornography addiction, but it is an addiction to that pathway of happiness. It's an addiction to the pathway of my pleasures. If my pleasures are met, I feel joy. If my pleasures are not met, don't feel joy. Most of us uh, ran that road when we were 16. We hit a train with it, and we realized it does not provide what we're looking for. Right? So, as good religious folk, many of us, thought that the answer to that then is a gate of behavior and a path of rules. 
If I behave right and I do what we see in the text the Pharisees do, if I erect some rules and I run on the path of my rules and I get to the end of the day and I say, yes, I kept my rules. Fulfillment. The problem is we stink at walking that path, don't we? So you do it. You put your rules in place when you're like 18, you go to summer camp, and you cry, and you're like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be better. I'm going to be better. Here's my rule path, and I'm going to follow the rules, but you're finding you're consistently stepping out of the path, right? So what happens when you get to the end of the day is rather than saying, yes, joy, you get to the end of the day, you feel shame and guilt. You get to the end of the day, you feel shame and guilt because you know you didn't keep the path. So then, what you do is you devise this double life that says, I'll pretend to everybody else like I'm keeping the path, but at the end of the day, I know I'm not keeping the path. So when my head hits the pillow and I'm forced to look internally, it's not joy that I feel, but a shame, condemnation, and guilt. This is the third one. Third one. The gate is prayer. The path is a change of my circumstances. That's what I think this looks like. I think we all are subtly convinced that I would get to the end of the day and feel, yes, if my circumstances just changed. If things just looked a little bit different. If I got a job, if we didn't have this sickness in our family, if I didn't have debt, if I did you know, whatever, if I got a job, if my wife liked me, whatever the case may be, if these things changed, that I can end the day, yes. So this works beautifully if it goes like this. Pray, 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 pray. Circumstances match up to what you think your prayers were designed to do. And you get to the end of the day, you're like, yes. God heard my prayer. He changed my circumstances. And now I'm fulfilled. The problem is how often does that happen? How often does the thing that you think you need to change actually change the way you think it needs to change? So you pray, 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 walk the path, walk the path, walk the path. Circumstances don't change, so what is that end? What's the end result? Bitterness of God, right? Rather than joy in God, I look back and say, well, God, you dropped the ball. If you would just change my circumstances, joy. But you haven't changed my circumstances, so I'm tempted. If you're honest, some of you, as you reflect this morning, that's really where your, your life is right now. Take to God because the circumstances of the path of your life haven't matched your expectations. You're doing the very thing that the Pharisees did. Your expectations are driving your ideas about God, and because they're not matching up, there's bitterness to God. Let me present one alternative way of seeing the path as we finish that I think the sinners and tax collectors in our text help us picture. And that is, if we see clearly in the Gospels, that Jesus is the only gate to joy. That it is impossible to find joy other than Jesus. So you're going to have this aha moment that for some of you is going to take till you're about 45 and you're going to hit the wall of running other paths. Like you're going to, you're going to be a sprinter 
down other paths to get to joy, because that's what you're driving after. You're driving after, you're driving after, and it's going to crash on you. You're going to look back and say, oh, it was Jesus. I'm trying to spare some of you the frustration of that this morning. Is that through God's word, you would see that in the text, a right understanding of the Messiah is the only path to true joy. That joyfulness is only found in Jesus. We see that in two pictures here in the text. Table fellowship. Can you imagine reclining at the table with Jesus, the Messiah, or wedding party? I love them. Here's my, here's my, my attack at the wedding party. I just hover in the back while they're dancing around the food table. It's awesome. Once everybody's come through, there's still tons of food. And as a pastor, I can just stand back there, strike up one conversation. I'm eating for like two hours. It's awesome. The picture in the text of wedding party and the bridegroom is here. You're getting a party with Jesus, the Messiah. This provides for us the only appropriate gate to get to joy. You can only come to it through Christ. So if you're here this morning and you're not in Christ, your application of the scriptures this morning is not to beg God to change your circumstances, but to run to Jesus. Not to pour yourself into addictions, but to run to Jesus. It's the only lasting hope that you have to get into next question is this. What's the path? If Jesus is the gate, what's the path? I want to suggest to you that this is the most challenging thing for us to get our brains around. It's the contrast between the self-righteousness of the Pharisees and the brokenness of the tax collectors and sinners. I would suggest to you this morning that Jesus is the gate to joy and brokenness is the only path. That sounds so weird to the modern American ears because we have been trained to believe that I get to joy and fulfillment by working harder and making myself someone. In the scriptures, we see an inversion of the kingdom. Those who think they're in are out, and those who think they're out are actually in. So he says the only way that you're going to get to joy, that you're going to get to Christ, that you're going to arrive at joy is through a recognition of your brokenness. This is what the prophet Isaiah says in Isaiah 57, that God dwells with the lowly and contrite heart. So this is awesome news for those of us that recognize our own brokenness and our own need for Christ. That if you want to get to Jesus, you do that through brokenness and humility. It is the path to joy. It is where joy lives. It is this simplistic, stunning affirmation that I am the outcast. I am the one that was disconnected, that was put off through Christ. God pursued me and invited me to the wedding feast. And until we live with that consistent awareness of brokenness, we never arrive at joy. We never arrive at joy.
Now, last idea is this. Jesus is the gate. Brokenness is the path. I, I want to see myself. I want to place myself as a tax collector and sinner. I want to humble myself regularly. In order to get to this destination, which is joy, or is it? Here's the interesting thing that God does with those that come through the gate of Christ and walk on the path of brokenness. Is you arrive at joy, and you find out that joy is actually Jesus. That Jesus is both the gate and the goal of true joy. Jesus is the gate, and he's the goal. So if we strive and we set out to walk the path to get to joy, what have we just done? We've created an idol, right? The idol's called joy. But rather, we get to the end of the path of brokenness, and we see who is waiting for us. It is Christ. He says, started it, we finish it by celebrating me. By feasting on me, by dining with me, by celebrating the wedding banquet with me. And so let me ask you, by way of application this morning, perhaps your joylessness is actually you peel back the thing behind the thing, that actually the thing behind the thing is not problem with your joy, but it's a problem with your intimacy with Jesus. And most often, if you peel back the layers of frustration or criticism, desperation for changing circumstances, that most often the thing behind the thing is someone that has lost a humble and contrite joy in Jesus. That's missing intimacy with God who would be akin to you leaving the parking lot and getting in your car and it dying on the side of the road and your gas gauge being below E and you're popping the hood looking at belts and hoses. There's no need to look at those things. The answer is staring you in the face. You're not intimate with Jesus. Gas tank's just empty. It's been a long time since you knelt by your bed and humbly celebrated that God saved you. It's been a long time since during congregational singing, your emotions were moved to tears by the fact that you of all people would be redeemed. It's been a long time since you sat over table fellowship with a friend of this church. And we're stunned in amazement that God would save the person like me. The answer to joylessness isn't pursuing joy, it's pursuing Jesus. And because I want you guys to think I'm hip, quote McCray at this point. Not because I've ever heard a song that McCray's done, but rather because I heard him talk. Um, that shows you how not hip I am. But he said this. I think he's spot on. But in seasons of my life of joylessness, the answer for me is quantity of intimacy with Jesus over quality to begin with. That I want to gorge myself on Jesus. 
I want to cram as much of worship of Christ into my heart, into my affections, into my mind consistently and trust that as a result of quantity of intimacy with Jesus, quality will result, worship will result. So what, what about you? How is the quantity of your intimacy with Jesus right now? How's the soil of your heart around your own sin? It is in that place, that place, that you find Jesus. Now here's the good news. You're going to spend the rest of your life learning to feast on Jesus. If God is gracious to you, you will never outgrow the need to be reminded of intimacy with Christ. Have you guys ever been around an 80-year-old saint that faithfully walked with Jesus for like 60 years? Really faithfully walked with Jesus and just sat down and talked with them? Ever met an elderly lady in a nursing home? Husband had passed and she was there and she just been talking to God for like a decade. There's something that oozes out of their life that you can't manufacture. You can't learn it in a seminary classroom. You can't learn it in our core classrooms. It only comes through intimacy with Christ. It's the only way to get it. So if we desire to finish the race, yes! Let's be a church that's marked by intimacy with Jesus. And that's going to start in places like this. So I'm going to invite you as we sing to pursue intimacy with Christ. If you don't know how and it's kind of clumsy right now, you're in good company. We all learn just by trying. What does it look like for me to talk and interact with God? What is humility in my sin? For some of you, it's kind of physical, like you're wired up physically. And so kneeling, like getting on your knees puts you in a posture where you have an awareness of your brokenness in some ways that's really helpful for people that are prideful like I am. It's like I need to physically be reminded of my brokenness, and this is a good place to do that. For others of you, it's standing and actually kind of reaching out to God, kind of hands held high, like I'm arrested, I'm busted in my sin, I, I need you. For others of you, you're real relational, and it comes through talking with someone that you need to kind of spin to a neighbor and say, man, I need, to I need us to pray for this. Some of you, it's helpful to be prayed over, and you could come to the front and kneel and have a pastor or leader pray over you. I don't know what it looks like, but until we learn to do it, both privately and corporately, I don't think we can walk the path to Jesus. So, that's what I invite you to. To start with Jesus and end with Jesus. Let's pray. God, I, I need to be reminded really, really regularly that I am the tax collector and sinner. And that you are the only hope that I have joy. I thank you that we who are in Christ live and dwell in a kingdom of joy. 
what great news. But how quickly we drift to the camp of Pharisees, joyless self-righteousness. Would you protect us from that, and would you inflame the fires of joy in our hearts this morning? Would you stun us and overwhelm us with your grace through Christ as we pray and as we sing? Would you do that in fame, his name?